I find it fascinating that the very first human being brought to our attention in Hebrews 11 is a man who suffered because of his demonstration of living faith. His name is Abel. And he not only suffered, but he paid the ultimate price because he died for it, right? Open the 11th chapter of Hebrews and you're almost immediately confronted with the fact that God will break every rule in a marketing campaign. Do you want people to sign up for Christianity? Promise them a life that guarantees, you know, a long and healthy and a happy and a rose-strewn path of prosperity in their journey. And they may sign on. Like the newest bestseller by Joel Osteen, who delivers 31 promises to speak over your life that will ensure God responds favorably. It's all wrapped in pseudo-Christian language. This false shepherd will tell, unfortunately, millions of readers to make 31 declarations. Speak them, and they guarantee God's blessing. Here's the first declaration. I didn't read the other 30. I just couldn't get past the first one, but here it is, and I quote, I declare God's incredible blessings over my life. I will see an explosion of God's goodness, a sudden widespread increase. I will experience the surpassing greatness of God's favor. It will elevate me to a level higher than I ever dreamed of. Yeah, it'll elevate Abel all the way to heaven, by the way. Osteen says, just declare this, final words, explosive blessings are coming my way. I wonder how these heroes of faith would define explosive. See, you open up God's brochure for testimonials of living faith, and the first man of faith you encounter gets killed for it. How many books do you think Abel would sell? Here's faith, walk in it, die. Okay, sign up. I mean, how many decision cards are you going to get filled out after Abel delivers his personal testimony? You see, ladies and gentlemen, as we explore the life of of Abel, let me remind you that Hebrews chapter 11 is not looking for decisions. It's looking for disciples. Decisions are easy to make. So are declarations, for that matter. Disciples are hard to make. Decisions take a moment. Disciples take a lifetime. One of the reasons I like going to Cracker Barrel, which is a significant part of the discipleship process in my life, (laughs) I will make that declaration, okay, you heard it here, is because I can order pancakes, and unlike every other restaurant I go to that brings me thick, sticky, artificial, you know, artificially sweetened, artificially colored, uh, hungry jack type of syrup. I don't get that at Cracker Barrel. I get real maple syrup. Now, if you want to have that kind of syrup at home, you're going to have to pay more money though, right? You got to pay more than for that artificial stuff, and that's because it takes a lot of time to make the real thing. And I just had this thought come to my mind, and so I thought I'd do a little research, so here you go. The traditional method of making the real thing requires workers to venture deep into the woods they call the sugar bush. They use hand drills to make small holes in the trunks of maple trees. A metal tube is carefully tapped into each hole, 
And uh, a bucket is hung from that. It's called, a, it's called a spile, that little rod. And the sap drips down that spile and into the bucket, one drip at a time. I read that on a good day, 50 trees might yield 40 gallons of sap. It's a thin, clear, watery kind of like substance with only a hint of sweetness. But then those buckets are poured into kettles that are over open fires and the sap comes to a a slow boil. And as it boils, the water content is, is, is evaporated and the sugars are concentrated. Hours later, it is developed into this rich flavor and a golden brown color. Then it's strained several times for impurities and then reheated again. Forty gallons of maple syrup will be needed or maple sap to produce one gallon of pure maple syrup. And that's why it's so expensive. And that's the kind of syrup delivered to my table at Cracker Barrel in a little glass bottle of pure gold. How many of you would like some pancakes right now? (laughs) Extra butter, I'll go ahead and admit it, okay? That syrup is an illustration of genuine faith. Strained, pressured, heated in the fire, and then heated all over again. I mean, you're going to walk by faith. Surely God will just make it all easy. No, your kids are going to get typhus and malaria. See, Hebrews 11 is going to show us faith that is genuine over and against the artificial stuff that you can say promises every good thing. So if you have your Bibles at at chapter 11, you'll notice the contrast here in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We'll find out why later. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. He was declared right before God. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, this text immediately takes us to the beginning of human history, and it informs us of some uh, rather dramatic things that are taking place. So I want you to turn back to the fuller account of Abel's testimony all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you'll discover the Bible giving you a number of events. We don't have time for many of them, but I want to look at some very appropriate events. If you go to chapter 3, And verse 20, this is just after Adam and Eve are exposed. They are confronted by God in the garden for having eaten the forbidden fruit. And God delivers several curses on his once innocent creation. He curses uh, the serpent, that is, the physical manifestation, at least at this point, of Satan. There in verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you, Satan, that is, and the woman, between your seed, that is all who follow you, and her seed, that is all who follow, the one who will come from her seed. That's a reference to the virgin birth, the coming of the Messiah. He goes on to say that he, 
shall bruise you on the head, literally crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You're going to bruise the Messiah, but he's going to crush you. That's what he's saying. Satan will be able to bring about damage and destruction to the followers of this coming Redeemer, including the Redeemer himself, but it'll only be temporary bruises. But he, the Redeemer, will mortally wound, crush the head of Satan in defeat. Then in this chapter, God delivers his, his punishment upon Adam and Eve, and I know you may be familiar with this, can't spend a lot of time here, but he informs them that they're now going to be barred from the garden. They can't go back in into what effectively was paradise. It represented intimate worship and fellowship with God. They're barred. Now, just before he sends them out of the garden, notice verse 21. Look down there. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the very first acting out of atonement. This is the first death which effectively covered the guilt of sin. It was the first picture of the coming Redeemer who would become the final sacrifice for sin. Now, you know, Adam and Eve had attempted, right, to cover over their their guilt with fig leaves. That's the first attempt of false religion, man-made effort to hide a guilty conscience. The problem is God can see through fig leaves and the sin remains. So instead what God does is he provides for them clothing from the bloodshed of an innocent animal. He effectively then teaches Adam and Eve that through the blood of an innocent animal their sin would be covered temporarily while they waited for the seed of the woman, the coming one who would permanently atone for the guilt of all of the sin of all mankind for all time. Everyone in the Old Testament then looked forward to the cross. We look back to that final expiation, as it were, of sin. So how did Adam and Eve respond? Though they are shamed and cursed and fallen and dejected, and sorrowful, they trusted in the atoning work of God, and they choose to trust Him as they are expelled from the garden. And we know that because of the very next chapter. Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. We read, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. In other words, what that informs us is, is instead of rebelling against God in anger, instead of rejecting the atoning plan of God, she's maintaining a trust in God. And here in the delivery room, she is praising God for the birth of her son. And more than that, she's naming him Cain which means to get, to get something. Or even more woodenly, he's here, the one I've gotten. In fact, many Old Testament scholars believe she's actually referring back to the earlier promise of the man-child coming to redeem them. And she is right here effectively thinking, he's it. He's here. The Redeemer has come. And she praises God 
that she has delivered him. Well, she's not exactly right, is she? In fact, unfortunately, Cain will not be mankind's redeemer. He will become mankind's first murderer. He won't give life. He will take life. Soon after the birth of Cain, we're not told how long, Eve bears their second son, Abel. Now, Abel and Cain grow up, verse 2, basically, if we summarize it, they grow up, and one of them decides to get his major in animal husbandry, and the other son decides to major in agriculture. And keep in mind, they're growing up outside the garden, fully aware of their parents' history. They're, They're fully aware of God's system of sacrifice and atonement, fully aware of the promise of the coming sacrifice, the Redeemer. And we know that because of verse 3. Notice. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now, it came about in the course of time. That phrase is an expression for an annual event. You could write in the margin of your Bible the word yearly or annually. The end of days can literally be translated the revolution of days, the end of the year. Now, we would love to have a lot more information given to us, but we take the implications and what we can read, and we can put some of these clues together. This was evidently standard procedure. Cain and Abel did not come up with the idea of, uh, of atonement. It was handed down to them by Adam and, and Eve. Again, we're not given the detailed curriculum of their religious you know, uh, education at home, but the actions of these two sons are consistent with an awareness of what God has done, what God is requiring in this post-garden existence regarding sacrifice. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't man's idea to come up with an altar. It's not, it's not man's creation. It wasn't man's idea, hey, I, I got it, let's, let's heap some stones up on top of each other and let's kill an innocent animal and, and burn it on an altar. Hardly. God had obviously given to mankind the way to approach him, and it was through blood sacrifice. So if I could just stop for a moment and give you a very, very quick four-point overview, here's what's happening in early human history. In Genesis chapter 1, if you're taking notes, you have the creation of man by God. In Genesis chapter 2, you have communion between man and God. In Genesis chapter 3, you have corruption away from God. And in Genesis chapter 4, you have confession toward God. Creation of man by God, communion between man and God, corruption away from God, and confession toward God. And You'll need to know that for the quiz, all right? Now that confession is nothing less than a statement of faith. Don't miss that. It's a statement of faith in God's mercy by way of blood sacrifice. The innocent dying for the guilty. Now notice verse 3 again. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. 
That lets us know the animal was already dead. He's already separated it out. There's already instruction given to him on how to offer fat and how to offer the rest of the animal. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now, frankly, you know, most people unfortunately believe that, that Cain got the short end of the straw. I mean, how unlucky can he get? He, he, he went into farming, and his brother went into livestock, and when you know it, God preferred livestock to vegetables and, and fruit. Cain must have been thinking, what a bummer, I, I chose the wrong career. But that isn't Cain's problem, and that isn't God's problem with Cain's offering. Now, based on the collation of events found in the first five chapters of Genesis, and I'm not going to put you to sleep with all the details, but we have enough clues regarding the age of Adam, the ages of his sons, at least fairly closely, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Old Testament scholars place Cain, get this, at around 120 years of age when this event occurs in Genesis chapter 4. That is really significant to understand. Cain was at least 120 years of age and Abel not too far, far behind. Now keep in mind, before the flood, these early forefathers lived hundreds of years. In fact, Adam died when he was 930 years old. That's a lot of candles, isn't it, on your pancakes? Well, here you got Cain and, and Abel, relatively then young. They're in their hundreds. <laughs> that's, that's young. That'd be good. And the point is, and this is significant, that the Cain and Abel have offered individual sacrifices to God for at least a hundred years. This isn't their first time. Only this time. Recorded here, Cain effectively says, I'm tired of getting animals from my brother. You know, I don't want to go out to his ranch again. I'm just as significant to God. I'm working just as hard as anybody else. I mean, what's the big deal? This year, this year, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to bring my blue ribbon vegetables and fruit, and I'm going to offer them on the altar to God. Listen, you know what this also tells us? It tells us that, that Satan, the deceiver, has not been on vacation. He's been working for more than a hundred years with the same strategy he used on Cain's mother. Cain eventually falls basically for the same line used a century earlier when the serpent whispered into the ear of his mother, did God really mean that? I mean, come on, aren't you taking God's word a little too seriously? Why, why would God bother? You've got a perfect attendance record at the altar. A hundred years. Never mind its fruit from the ground that God, by the way, has cursed. This time, do it your way. So after approaching God, perhaps for a hundred years earlier, this time Cain says, I'm going to approach God with the work of my hands, never mind it's from the fruit of ground cursed, I'm sure God won't mind. You know what we have here? We have in this text the beginning of the history of world religions. This is where it all starts. I mean, they all look good, too. It all kind of looks the same. 
like syrup until you taste it. You can look at it and you can't really tell the difference. I mean, think about it. Here you have in Genesis chapter 4, both Cain and Abel are coming to the prescribed place of sacrifice. They both seem to want to please God. They both seem to want to worship God. They both come at the prescribed annual season of worship. They both come to use the altar. They both bring an offering. They both demonstrate faith in an invisible God that he would be pleased. But one of them is artificial and the other one is genuine. See, you take a closer look here and Abel is obedient to God's plan of forgiveness and atonement. Cain is disobedient to God's plan. Abel is bringing what God wanted. Cain is bringing what he wanted. Abel is following divine revelation. Cain is following human reason. Abel is, this is the most important part, is coming by way of the promise of a future cross. And Cain is ignoring the way of the cross. In fact, Jude 11, all the way over, nudging right up against the book of Revelation. Jude refers to religious systems categorically by saying they are the way of Cain. They're the way of Cain. Cain becomes an example throughout human history, not of genuine faith, but of religious works, religious systems. They say we believe in a higher deity. We want to worship this higher deity. We're committed to religious practices and religious works. But in the meantime, we're going to deny the specific, satisfactory, atoning work of the Messiah on the cross for our sin. That is the way of God. Cain. Let me bring to God what I've produced. Listen, Cain is simply offering his version of fig leaves to God. The problem is you can't get back to God your way. In fact, the way to God is barred. From the Garden of Eden and the fall of man all the way through the Old Testament, And up to the cross of Jesus Christ, God will clearly illustrate that the way back to him is under lock and key. And you've got to have the right key. Let me show you what I mean a little further. What you see here in Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel coming with their offering. Now, there's no need of building an altar here, and you don't find them doing that. That's because the altar already exists. They've been using it for a hundred years. Cain and Abel then not only have a prescribed time for worship at the end of days, annually, they not only have a prescribed manner of how to approach God through animal sacrifice, but they also had a place to worship Him. Now we're told, again, if we put clues together, we're told that when Adam and Eve left the garden, God assigned a pair of cherubim. Remember? Warrior angels they were. And they were assigned to guard the garden. And we're told specifically in chapter 3 and verse 24 of Genesis 
that they guarded the entrance to the garden on the east side, preventing mankind from re-entering. Many believe it would be at that place, right there in the presence of those cherubim, or nearby, with their flaming sword, it would be at that place where Adam and Eve, and later their sons, the place that marked their exile, the place where the curse was delivered of a promised Redeemer, the place where they would long uh, to regain fellowship, it would be that place where they would come to offer God God-prescribed atoning sacrifices. Frankly, I don't find it coincidental at all that the priests would later approach worshiping God both in the tabernacle and the temple by entering from the east side. Now, we're not told how long these cherubim guarded the Garden of Eden. They may very well have stayed until the flood of Noah wiped mankind off the face of the earth just a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 7, and that flood reshaped the topography of earth in that catastrophic event and, of course, caused the garden to be no more. But get this, even after the flood, the memory of the fall of man and the exile of mankind from paradise, that, that garden, the memory of the cherubim which guarded the entrance of the garden and the presence of God. God wanted kept alive. God did not want mankind to forget. And so, as Israel departs from Egypt years later during the time of Moses, God gives instructions related to the construction of the tabernacle. This is that movable meeting place. And in the center was the Holy of Holies, where in rested the Ark of the Covenant, a golden box containing the law tablets delivered by Moses to the people. It it was a place of God's unique presence. Priests could come into the room just outside the Holy of Holies, a place called the Holy, or a room called the Holy Place, where they performed a number of sacred duties. But a heavy curtain separated the Holy Place from the Holy of Holies. And God prescribed in Exodus chapter 26 that Israelite seamstresses were to embroider into the fabric of that curtain the figures of cherubim. To deliver the message, the cherubim are still guarding the way back. It's it's under lock and key, effectively. At best, the people could sacrifice to God at a distance, not far away. Later, the temple was built, and once again, huge cherubim were sewn into the curtain leading into the Holy of Holies to signify, once again, access is restricted. The idea of God walking with you in the cool of the day, that's over. God doesn't want mankind to forget. Why? And how to approach him. In fact, in the temple, I have read that they had, they had sculpted cherubim standing guard in the inner sanctuary, 1 Kings 6, 15 feet high with their wings spread out 15 feet wide. I mean, you walk in there and you're struck with 
those warrior angels are still guarding the way. How do we ever get past them? Imposing, impressive. You see, the message from the Garden of Eden is alive and well. You can't come in here. But you can sacrifice nearby as I've prescribed it. In fact, only one man, as you know, could enter the Holy of Holies, and that high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in trembling fear. He'd have a rope tied around his ankle. He'd have little bells at the fringe of his garment. And if the other guys out in the holy place heard that he had stopped moving, they would have assumed he had been struck dead, and they'd pull him out with the rope. And he would enter that Holy of Holies when? One time a year, at the end of days, at the revolution of days. And he would come bearing the blood of an innocent animal, and he would slip between the folds of that curtain with those cherubim sewn into the fabric. And as soon as he was inside, he would be struck all over again. Why? Because he would see the box, and there on the sides of that ark were crafted cherubim rising as if hovering with their wings touching, looking downward, and he would be immediately all struck. They were still guarding the presence of God, as it were, and for the most part, even he couldn't get past them. Access that's free and open. That died in the garden. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the lid of that box called the mercy seat, and God would be temporarily satisfied with the covering of sins for the nation. And I say temporarily, yes, temporarily, because all of this, all of this is pointing to a wooden altar upon which the seed of the woman, the virgin-born Redeemer, would come to die and put an end to sacrifices for all time. And just before that Redeemer died, he said, it is what? It is finished. And then what happened? The curtain of the temple ripped from top to bottom as if to say the cherubim no longer bar access to God. Come on in, effectively. In fact, you can do better than the high priest You can go between and you can go beyond. You can approach the very throne of God who indwells you by the way. You can walk with him now in the cool of the day. Even now, as Horatius Bonar wrote a poem that said it so well, he said this, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Now let me show you something else from the testimony of Abel. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 6, it tells us that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for the offering of Cain. 
The writer of Hebrews 11 says it this way, God testified about his gifts. You could literally translate that, God testified over his gift. In other words, God did something obvious to let everybody know, I accept Abel's, I reject Cain's. Now, what did God do to publicly testify that Abel's was accepted? It doesn't tell us, but that hadn't slowed us down. If we put some of the clues together, let me suggest this. God did it often through the Old Testament to prove the authenticity of both the offering and the offer. When God accepted Aaron's sacrifice in Leviticus 9, what did he do? He sent fire from heaven and consumed the burnt offering upon the altar. Gideon, later in Judges 6, watched as fire came from the angel of the Lord upon his sacrifice and consumed it. When Elijah and the false prophets of Baal put their faith to trial, you remember? God testified to the legitimacy of Elijah's offering by sending fire down from heaven. I mean, you just can't debate with that, can you? There it is. When King David offered solemn sacrifice to God, we read in 1 Chronicles 21, 26, that God answered by heaven by sending fire down. When Solomon offered to God the sacrifices of praise at the dedication of the temple, 2 Chronicles 7, the Bible says that fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. Fire from heaven was God's testimony of acceptance. I personally believe that year after year, as Adam and Eve came to the edge of that garden along with their sons and gave their offerings on the altar within the sight of the cherubim who stood guard over everything they had lost, they by faith offered to God and God testified to the legitimacy of their faith by sending fire from heaven consuming their offerings. Only this year it would be different for the first time in human history because Cain Though he'd brought an animal a hundred times before, this time he evidently said to himself, God will testify over the work of my hands. And Abel brought innocent lifeblood, which he could not create with his hands. And that's why his offering was better. And there they stood. And the fire fell, Abel's gift, maybe they're sharing space on the altar. Abel's gift is consumed, and Cain's gift remains untouched. That was utter humiliation. That was a public embarrassment. And and I wonder if the serpent whispered into his ear, that is blatant favoritism. You're just as good as your brother. We do know that the envy in the heart of Cain began to burn to the point that before that year was out, Cain became the first murderer and his little brother became the first to suffer a violent crime, the first to become a martyr, the first believer to die for his faith because he made a declaration of genuine faith. The Bible tells us that that wasn't the last word. Hebrews 11, verse 4, gives us the added insight that even though Abel was dead, he's still speaking to us to this very day. What's he saying? What's he saying? When you live in obedience 
to the Word of God, your life might not get easier, it might get more difficult. That's what he's saying. The walk of faith may lead you directly into the valley of the shadow of death. That's what he's saying. You think about it. Abel did what was right and he was hated for it. He worshiped God correctly and he was persecuted for it. He obeyed God and he was murdered because of it. He being dead still speaks. What could he be telling us? I can think of a few more things. There's only one way to God. And we didn't come up with it. There's only one foundation for believing genuine faith. There's one. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. The curtain stays closed. The gate remains locked. Now, in our fuller understanding of God's redemptive plan, which Abel knew only a fraction of, Abel, however, would be agreeing with us, though he looked for it, And we look back to it, and it is simply this. Jesus paid it what? All. Beloved, everything else is fig leaves. Everything else is religion. Everything else is the way of Cain. It it, it might be brown and, and sticky and sweet and have a label on it. It might look the part but it is artificial. And Abel, by the way, begins this legacy. He's the first person in Hebrews 11. Begins this legacy of faith in God. And I want you to consider this, and then we got to quit. He he practiced outside the garden what Jesus would submit to in the garden. Not my will but thine. Hours later then, the Lord went outside the garden of fellowship and he submitted nearby to an altar of wood and separation and the fire of God's wrath fell. And there, outside the garden where he submitted, Christ finished it. You see, Abel's sacrifice was one lamb for one person. Later came Passover. It would be one lamb for one family. Then later came the annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It would be one lamb for one nation. And then came the Messiah, the seed of the woman, virgin-born, the Redeemer, And it would be one lamb for the entire world. What is Mr. Abel, this hero of faith, saying today? I think he would gladly sing with us the lyrics, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Amen? Why don't we stand and just sing that, just that chorus, I need no other argument. Let's sing. I need no other argument. I